0: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, the best of Risk number 25, you'll hear Jonathan Giuseppe. You can't have a job
1: and go to your boss and be like, hey, Rick, um,
0: I'm going to take a three-hour shit. Scream my
1: calls.
0: That and more. But first, folks, our annual Scary Stories episode for Halloween is coming up very soon. We thought it would be fun for you. The Risk fans. If you sent in little audio recordings, you can make them with the voice memo apps on your phones, where you talk for about 30 seconds. At least try to keep it shorter than 60 seconds, I'd say. And tell us about your favorite Halloween memory. Or maybe a moment from a risk story that scared you the most. Or maybe the scariest thing you ever saw in a dream. Or the scariest moment you remember from a horror movie. Anything like that. Could be any of those things. You can find tips on how to get good audio quality at risk-show.com slash recording and you can email those voice memos right to our audio editor john lasala at john at risk-show.com that's j-o-h-n at risk-show.com we'll be right
2: back imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time
0: Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Mad, 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 Behind Me Now. And this is the best of Risk number 25. Next week's episode will be the first one of season 14, our 14th year doing the show, if you can believe that. And then a week later, even more of some of the best stories of 2022 so far. You know, that'll be the best of risk number 26, since we're kind of on a roll lately. Even our live shows are getting bigger attendances lately. You know, we've been through some spotty spots (laughs) during the pandemic, but we seem to have everything turned back up to 11 now. And don't forget these best of episodes are a great way to introduce someone to the podcast. If they've never heard the podcast before, just go to risk-show.com slash risk. There's just so many great episodes that are the perfect introduction to the series. Oh, and by the way, I, I want to thank you. So many of you guys reached out. Sending the kindest words about the opening monologue of the episode called Try that we ran a few weeks back. That was the episode where I talked about all the haters online saying negative stuff about my voice or my personality or whatnot. The funny thing is most of you seem to think that was a new episode. No, on Thursdays, we rerun classic content. So that episode called Try, that was from 2011. That was a landmark episode. It was a real turning point for me to wholly realize that the real reason for being of this podcast, the raison d'etre of this podcast, is to help people Cope with ignoring the haters, you know? And that includes also learning to actually appreciate constructive criticism. A lot of you over the years have sent in good faith criticisms that have been profoundly educational and helped me grow. So do not fear, I am not quite in that, that same place that I was in 2011. And it's the show and you all that have helped me grow. Now, first, we're going to hear a couple of truly amazing stories, both of which feature surprising things passing through bodily orifices. I can't think of a more enticing premise from my point of view. Maureen O'Malley Kirshner first pitched us a story during one of our online pitch-a-thons two and a half years ago. And when we asked for a full recording, she sent us one of her telling the story to her sister-in-law in their kitchen over a cup of coffee. And we loved that recording so much, we were like, Bucket, let's use this. So we had John lasalle compose a whole suite of music for it. And that is a story called giving grace. But before that, a story that Jonathan Giuseppe shared in May of 2022 at the Risk Live show at the Hotel Cafe in Los Angeles. The next one of those is at that same venue on October 18th. You can find Jonathan at jonathanuseppe.com, And here they are now with a story we call Chemo Poops.
1: So, five years ago, all of my hair in my pubes fell out. Because of chemotherapy. I had cancer. I wasn't just doing chemo recreationally, like those wild teens we've heard so much about. I uh, had a very rare cancer called sarcoma that takes place in the connective tissue of your body. It was in my right calf. And it hadn't spread anywhere. So it was serious, but it wasn't deadly. Still, you know, anytime you get a cancer diagnosis, you begin to question your mortality. And uh, the year after treatment, I made the decision to come out as genderqueer. I came from a really conservative family. So before cancer, I kind of thought, you know, I'd be one of those people on their deathbed that just inaudibly murmurs, I was queer! And then dies. <laughs> but, uh, you know, cancer really made me see that I, I, it was important for me to be myself in this life. And so I was done with treatment, and I was out for two years, and things, you know, are great. When you're allowed to be yourself, everything you do, even the mundane stuff, is just, just colored with this hint of joy and presence. My spouse, Katie... She supported me a hundred percent. She was the one that bought me my first purse, mostly because I kept losing my clutch. <laughs> she was like, bitch, you need a purse. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay. So she gets me this huge blue purse, but I, you know, I don't have much in it. Can't put tampons in it. Obviously, I wear pads. In all seriousness, I had this huge purse, but uh, it was empty, but that was about to change. Two months into the pandemic, I was lying on my couch and I just couldn't breathe. It felt like there was like a tank on my chest. I was scared it was COVID. So I went to the doctor the next day and they did an x-ray and it showed that there was so much fluid in my chest that it was collapsing my left lung. So they rushed me to the hospital immediately to drain the lung. And they did a CT scan and a biopsy. And it showed that the cancer had come back. And this time it was in my chest wall. When I looked at the CT scan, I was shocked. There was this huge tumor in my chest. And it was very close to my heart. and It was compressing my left lung. I, I just like couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that that was inside of me. I was like, how did it grow? And I didn't want to believe it because I had just really started living my life. I mean, you know, this can't be, but um, it, was, it was true. Um, and so when I looked at the CT scan also, I was, I was like very aware. I was like, treatment was really hard the first time. I don't know if I can do it again. And also um, I might not make it through this time. And they said the words stage four, they said the words urgent, but I didn't want to believe them. But still, you know, when you have cancer, there's no other choice. You just have to start. So I started treatment again. And I was on a clinical trial uh, of immunotherapy and chemotherapy. And it was great, it worked for a while. But unfortunately, after a year and a half, the tumor slowly began to grow to the point that it was pushing my heart to the side and it was compressing my pulmonary artery. I remember I met with my surgeon and he was concerned and he was, he sat me down and I'll never forget, he was like, Jonathan, I'm not gonna lie, this is the real deal. We have to switch treatment immediately. So they started radiating my chest and they switched my chemo to a more intense chemo. This new chemo, instead of getting chemo for one day, I would bring this huge bag home with me and I would slowly get chemo pumped into my body for two weeks straight. This new chemo made me really dehydrated and made my poop like a rock. (laughs) It was as hard as it could be like a rock. The doctors said this could happen and it takes stool softeners every day. I don't know if I thought I was too cool for stool. <laughs> softeners or what? But at some point, I just stopped taking them. And boy, oh boy, were me and my butthole completely humbled. <laughs> now I pop stool softeners like after dinner mints. I buy them at bulk at Costco with the old people. I'm team stool softener. But I wasn't always, you know, this wise and weathered butthole sage you see before you. I had to go on a hero's journey. When people think about cancer patients, they think about them puking, but they don't think about them pooping. And I'm here to change that tonight. Somebody has to do the work. (laughs) (laughs) The day started with my coffee and the calming expectation of my morning poop. I finished my coffee and I remember I walked to the bathroom and I closed the door and I felt that safety you feel of knowing you're going to have this time with yourself. (laughs) I sat down. I put on pure moods. Everything was perfect. But then I push. And immediately I'm like, wow, that's too big. It shouldn't be that big. I turn off pure moods, and now I'm a little scared. I'm scared to deal with the reality of what's back there. But I push again. And it feels like if my butthole is a pellet gun and someone's loading a cannonball into the chamber. (laughs) I sit up, I focus up and I say to myself, I need to take this shit seriously. (laughs) The fight is on. Katie can hear the battle from outside the bathroom. And finally, she brings me two yoga blocks for my feet so my hips can have a better angle.
4: <sighs>
1: you know, finally, she has to come into the bathroom and help me. And she's like, you know, right by my side and she's, she's coaching me. This is after an hour of fighting. But, you know, her coaching is mostly her just going like, Oh my God, I am so sorry! <laughs> <laughs> So my intestines are squeezing and cramping and I'm leaning forward and grunting. I'm not saying I know what it's like to go through childbirth, but what I am saying is that this turd initiated contractions. (laughs) I'm so scared. And it's... Two hours in, and I've got nowhere. And the sensation in my body is so intense, I think I'm going to pass out or, like, puke. And finally, I'm like, okay, we just need to swallow our pride and call a professional. So I call my oncologist, and the front desk person answers. They're like, hi, you have four people in front of you. Do you mind if I put you on hold? Before I can even say a word, I'm on hold and all I hear is smooth jazz through the phone. So now all Katie hears is like do do Oh God pam pam Fuck me! Kill me now Finally. They get back on the phone and they're like, hi, this is Ramirez speaking, how may I help you? And I'm like, hi, this is Jonathan Giuseppe. Um, I feel like I have the statue of David in my ass and I, I don't know how to proceed. He's like, okay, damn, let me transfer you. This is the front desk guy. This is way over his head. So he transfers me to Anya, the nurse practitioner, and she's a total badass, a total pro. She's right there in the pocket with me. She's like, all right, calm down. Stand up, drink some water, walk around. I know this is scary, but this will pass. It feels like prophetic or something, like she's like King Solomon. I feel totally reassured. I hang up the phone, you know, now I have a plan. So I stand up to get a glass of water and poopy water rushes down both my legs. I start kicking my chemo bag away because I don't want to shit on my chemo, which is not a sentence I ever thought I would say, but we're in uncharted territory. I was also on disability the whole time I was in cancer treatment and for good reason, you know. You can't have a job and go to your boss and be like, hey, Rick, um, I'm going to take a three hour shit. Screen my calls. You also can't take a shit in the office that's so intense you have to take your shirt off. You can't be completely naked in the stall when someone walks in. That's not the corporate culture they're trying to cultivate. (laughs) So I look down at my phone and indeed three hours have passed, over three hours. And now I'm really concerned. I'm really scared. Because I called a professional and I feel like I'm all out of options. It didn't work. I have a true weight in my colon that I've never felt before and I don't know if I have the strength to move what needs to be moved. Yes, I'm concerned about my poor little butthole. It's never been open for this long, and I'm scared it's gonna rip. Yes, I'm concerned that I'm gonna have to give up and go to the hospital, and like they're gonna have to like put me under and pull it out. I don't know how it works, but it seems <laughs> horrifying, whatever that process is. But honestly, at this point, what I'm truly scared of is that I'm going to die like
3: Elvis.
1: (laughs) The last thing in the world I want is for my wife Katie to have to go to the mortician and choose if they want the funeral to be open asshole or closed. (laughs) The mood in the room has definitely shifted from pure moods to straight up jock jams. Tootsie Roll by the 69 boys (laughs) is playing as I make the decision to stick my finger up my ass and I start chiseling like I'm trying to get out of Shawshank. (laughs) Once I made the decision, it was not a wild process. It was... Very calm, you know. I tried pushing in desperation and it hadn't worked. This was almost a meditation. It was almost as if my third eye opened right there on the toilet and I surrendered myself completely to this turd. If this was going to pass, it was going to have to pass through, you know, pure relaxation. Relaxation. Andy Dufresne did not get out of Shawshank in one night of fury. He worked slowly and calmly over years. So I shift. I become Michelangelo looking at that enormous, bulky piece of marble and deciding, I'm going to make a masterpiece. (laughs) So I'm chiseling, but I'm also like shaking it, and I'm trying to shake it loose. And that bowling ball of weight in my colon begins to lurch forward like that giant boulder in Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) It's encouraging that it started moving, but it's also terrifying because now all that weight is centered on my tiny little butthole. I'm feeling the most intense pressure I've ever felt in my entire life. My veins are bulging, but things are moving. We have to go forward. It's almost as if my butthole is a submarine that's gone too deep in the ocean and the pressure's starting to crush it. And I'm just the captain there yelling, Hold! Hold! Nuts and bolts are flying past my head and water's rushing into the cabin. Hold!
4: Hold!
1: eventually my asshole opens up wider than the sun (laughs) all of the muscles in my body work in congruence and pass the statue of David I feel relief like I've never felt before I feel free I feel like Andy Dufresne coming out of that sewage pipe (laughs) I went through a river of poopy water and came out clean on the other side. (laughs) The shit changed the way I live. That purse that was once empty is now filled with Tuck's medicated hemorrhoid pads, Tuck's medicated hemorrhoid cream, stool softeners, and a rosary. (laughs) A couple months after this shit, the doctors made the decision to... um, go into surgery because they had to get the cancer out soon. So in order to get to the tumor, they had to cut my chest wall open. In order to get the proper margins, they had to take out uh, three ribs, a wedge of my left lung, an artery, and some lymph nodes. I remember I woke up in the most pain I've ever felt. And um, I was on a ton of pain meds, which also gives you constipation. I remember the day after surgery, Katie walked into the hospital room with this huge tub of stool softener. I was in so much pain that I couldn't move. And I remember she mixed that stool softener into my water and she fed me beef stew. And I can't think of anything more romantic. (laughs) She was there for me during my transition, she was there for me during cancer twice, and she was right by my side during the biggest shit of my life. (laughs) So um, I got a CT scan two months ago, and it showed that uh, there's no sign of disease. The treatment worked. So now me, Katie, and our two cats, Don and Chubbs, can start living our lives together again. I may have lost some ribs, and I may have hemorrhoids, But uh, it's a small price to pay to be yourself and live the rest of your life with your love. Thank you.
2: We are experiencing an unusually high amount of calls at the moment. Please hold, and the next available agent will be with you as soon as possible. We're back.
5: Okay. So, on April 10th, 2020, on Good Friday, <laughs> my husband and I were sitting out on our front porch having a glass of wine. Right when COVID hit, we were all just not knowing what was going on. We were starting to have the isolation and feeling alone, trapped. My husband, Aaron, had been teaching and they had put and moved him from in-person to online. And I, my work had just announced that we all were working from home, which was kind of scary and kind of weird. And we just, we didn't know what was going on. I remember the day they closed out all the restaurants. We went to one of our favorite places to have a drink. And I remember the wait staff, the were, were, people were like in tears because they're like, we don't know what's going to happen. Like, this is our jobs, this is what we do. And Aaron and I were like, we just need to go to this place, spend money, because we know these people and we want to support them. And that, in some ways, that was kind of the, we were losing a part of our community. At that point. So the following day on Easter Saturday. On April 11th. I had started feeling my body felt like I was having my period. It was hurt. It was like pain. Like cramps. Like I've had cramps before. Like I've had really bad cramps. And it felt like that. And I... Which just like, you know what, I'm going to go lay down for a bit. I'm just not feeling well. I've been bleeding, which I was like, okay, this is like a period. That's normal. I've been having my period, but it was like spotting. It was what I've been having. And I had cramps in the past. So I go upstairs. I'm just laying down, and the pain just gets intense. Like, it just hurts. Like, it's. I've never had that pain before in my life. So... I'm laying in bed and I'm just like like I I'm I, I can not put pants on. Like I can't like the pain is just so intense. So I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna poo bear it. Just wear my just underwear, just the I've You're done the house. Who cares? I, I'm not doing I'm not going anywhere. There's no Let's one's no <laughs> one's coming. And so I I'm like, okay, maybe if I shower and maybe if I just like so that sometimes helps when and try to relax. <laughs> try to relax. And it seemed to dull at a time, and it was like, okay, so I'm just going to relax. I put on a YouTube video. I was watching The Try Guys, which is the most random thing, and I actually fell asleep while watching it, which I normally don't do. Were you in the bathtub? No, I was, in, I was, was, back, I was in back in bed. And then, so at one point, I felt like I had to poop, like just a massive amount of pressure like I had to use the bathroom like it was yeah painful like it was like it's I feel like I have flashes like I don't fully remember what was going on at that time and I felt kind of like outside my body and were you lightheaded or? I, th- I did stumble at times. Like, I just kind of was just in a fog and going about what was happening. Mm-hmm. And so at one point, like, I had this, this liquid came out, like, just liquid. Like, I didn't know what it was. And this is while you were? This was when I was in the bathroom. I just tried to use the bathroom. Okay. And this, this liquid just came out. Like, just. So cascade you're just like I guess I have I whatever Someone I'm like I have kidney stones I'm dying it's fine it's I don't want to go to the hospital I don't really it's want COVID, it right it's COVID I don't want to leave my house right and at one point it just became so painful like I, I took a second shower which I normally don't do I don't take showers like go back to back I don't do that Unless, like, I'm feeling really sick or something. And Aaron and I had planned to have, like, get ready for the Easter dinner. We were going to get a steak and have, like, a nice dinner. Mm-hmm. Like, what we could do. And he came in. He's like, wait, why are you going to the shower again? I'm like, I, I just don't feel well. Just, like, I'm just not feeling well. And I got out of the shower. Like, I turned the shower and my body, like, I was just, like, in so much pain. And I just, like, wanted... I was just pushing, pushing. Like, there was something in me. Like, I was just pushing. And... And I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna go in the toilet. The shower's still on. I have a, a podcast playing. And I'm just like, just pushing, pushing, pushing. And then there was just this release of just like, blah, 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 blah. and I'm like, oh, okay. So I look down, and there's hair in the toilet. Hair! Hair. Okay. Like, I was like, what? And I pull this thing out. Because it, it was still connected to It you. was still connected. It was pulled out of the toilet. And it's a baby. <laughs> I didn't know I was pregnant. I That previous fall, like, my body, like, I hadn't been feeling well. Like, I, I had gone off birth control, and I had other things were going on, and it just, things happened. But my body never really indicated that I was pregnant. There was just nothing. Even I have friends who saw me at this time. And you've seen pictures that you were like, you know, no. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> you, I mean, it could be, yeah. you know, adding some weight over the holidays or whatever. It, you wouldn't necessarily yeah. have think about. And as I pull hold this thing up, she starts crying. And I scream, Aaron! And he comes upstairs and... He's carrying his iPad and he's like, What's happening? He opens the bathroom door, sees me holding a baby on the toilet. On the toilet, and him going, What the fuck? <laughs> and throws his iPad. And Aaron is not a small man. He's over six feet tall, you know, yeah. 200 pounds or so, like tall. Yeah. He's strong. Yeah. So Aaron, you know, throwing an iPad would have quite an an impact on top of all of this. (laughs) And um, I screamed, call
2: 911.
5: Now, it's kind of flashes at this point. Like, I don't really have a clear image of what happened. But I remember Aaron calling 911 on the phone with the dispatcher. I'm still on the toilet holding this (laughs) Thing. <laughs> this thing that you didn't know was inside you yeah. that has caused you all this discomfort. Yeah. And he's like, the, the dispatcher's on the phone with Aaron saying, okay, I need you to cut the umbilical cord. Aaron was getting his shoelaces out of his boot to tie off the umbilical cord. And I just remember saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like it's these flashes. The EMTs come in. They and, and you were still on the toilet. This morning. I got off the toilet. I was on my knees on our floor in our bathroom. Okay. And did you at least have like a towel? No, Aren't I didn't. No, you, I didn't. You're still butt naked, naked from the shower. Yeah. From being and on the. To- is the water still on? The, the water's floor? still on. <laughs> the shower is still going. Like there's all these, and so and it's like I, and the EMT comes. They they cut the milk cord. They check me out, and, I, and they're like, okay, we need to take you downstairs, and I stand up like, I'm naked, can someone get me, like, hand me the bathrobe? <laughs> and, like, I'm sure they weren't thinking of it. they're like, whatever, we just gotta we just gotta get you out, like, it's <laughs> and I just stand up, and I'm like So were you, so once you get your bathrobe or a towel or whatever yeah. it is they got you? Yeah, um, so I thought I walked out of the bathroom and down the stairs. Aaron said no. One yes. of the firemen carried me down the stairs and into onto the gurney. Yeah. Now, mind you, our entire neighborhood there's fire. There's a fire truck. There's an ambulance. Like super exciting. <laughs> this is this is a short street of townhouses,
2: right? Yes. And yeah.
5: it, it dead ends to like the parking strip yeah. for the townhouses. Yeah. And so. Their people are, are going to be out, being like, "What's going on? What's happening?" Yeah, and It's COVID time. Yeah, so. and everyone's like, "What the hell is going on?" So as we're as like we're getting in like the ambulance and everything, um, they they hand me the thing. <laughs> this this thing. Is she still screaming? She's still screaming. She's crying. She's doing what an infant should be doing, and they get me in the the ambulance and the the head fireman said get him to Salt Lake Regional Medical and they take me there and Aaron is in the house there's blood everywhere in our bathroom he has to mind you he's been wearing sweatpants and a t-shirt and he's like I can't go to the hospital looking like this and mind you there's You know, this is all unknown. So this means that you didn't have, like, a backpack. Yeah, nothing back. You know, there was nothing planned. Yeah, It's not like you knew you needed an overnight bag or anything. Right. There's just stuff. It's just complete chaos. It's complete chaos. It would be like being in a car accident and going to the hospital. You wouldn't have a clue that... That would be happy. So when we're in the when I'm in the ambulance, the one of the ambulance uh, EMTs is talking to me, Mm -hmm. just trying to keep me like alert. alert. They need to do. They're trying to like make sure I'm not going into shock, make sure I'm not like doing all this stuff. And they had called ahead to the hospital saying we have a patient coming in that has given birth at home, no prenatal, no nothing. We're coming in. So obviously the hospital is like shit. Like, we need to right. get everything that we don't, because there's nothing. We have no information. We know nothing. Right. So they wheel us in. And this is also, I don't have a mask on. It's I don't, COVID. It's COVID. I have no mask. I'm being wheeled into a hospital I have never been to. On <laughs> like, a gurney on a with a gr- screaming baby. With a screaming child who is just like, what the fuck is going on? I'm like... <laughs> so... Had you did you deliver the placenta at home or had you not delivered it yet? So it fell out while I was kneeling. I don't. This is when I Natural, don't. Yeah, your body just took over. Yeah, and, just like and did well, it. Yeah didn't yeah. think like I was just like I don't remember it they told me it happened and they did the hospital they did all the tests so presumably did they bring the placenta they brought to the, the hospital? placenta to the hospital in like one of those like like nuclear waste bags
6: yes. and, <laughs> and, like, <The> <laughs> has, has yeah like
5: bag and so we get in the hospital and they wheel me into this room it's actually a very nice room they take the child, the baby, and put her on... The screening thing. Yeah, and put her and do her doing, like, tests and everything. And everything's coming back fine. She's absolutely fine. Which, they're like... This, this is crazy. This is bizarre. This is crazy. And they're also checking me out, and they're, like, they're clearly... They're like, you're definitely in shock. We're probably gonna need to give you something. Like, like... Yeah. And right. we also have to sew you up, because apparently I was a second-degree tear, which I was just like, okay, like, awesome, like. So, um, Aaron gets to the hospital, and he first goes to see the emergency room. And he says, my wife came in with a baby, like. <laughs> um, I'm guessing she's here, like. They send him up to maternity, And he gets in, and they gave him a mask and everything, and they're like, okay, we're going to take her to the nursery. And I said to him, can you go with her to the nursery? And he went with the nursery. They were checking him out and everything. And the nurse, she walked in, and she could see his eyes are just bugging out. He's like, what is, like, is she okay? What's happening? Like, and the nurse goes, oh, they didn't tell you. She's fine. She's absolutely fine. She's basically perfect. Like... (laughs) <laughs> so she realized, she processed that, like, he didn't know anything and needed to sort of be yeah. Give reassured. Reassured, yeah. And so I had to try. I was like, I probably should call my parents and tell them that this happened. And <laughs> yeah, they didn't pick up the first time. So, okay. so I called my best friend from high school, who I've been friends with since we were 14 years old, and her. And I'm like... So, I just had a baby. And she's like, What? Yeah, yeah. That, that, that,
6: that's kind of our reaction
5: to when. Yeah. Aaron called Ken, called your husband. And, he, and Ken <laughs> comes downstairs, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, Is everything okay? And he's like, They have <laughs> a baby. And I'm like, Oh, they're pregnant. He's like, No, they had a baby. And I'm like, What? <laughs> And so it was just, and like this whole thing. So all the the nurses and everyone coming and helping. It's a whirlwind. It was a whirlwind. But I, like, the thing that was really incredible was, yes, it's beginning of COVID and we don't know what's going on. If we had known, Aaron probably would not have been in the delivery room when I had the child. Right. Because they were, they were keeping the dads out of delivery
2: rooms that early, right? So...
5: So finally, the doctors, like, come in and say, okay, you probably need to get some clothes for your wife, but once you do, you cannot leave. So, so come, come prepared to come, stay. Come prepared to stay. Like, you're going to be staying. And originally, they were like, we're probably going to keep you for three days because mm-hmm. we just, since we don't know. And Aaron had to go back home and go get clothes. And our neighbors are like, what happened? <laughs> and like, one of our neighbors calls me while I'm in the hospital, like... There was a fire truck at your house? Everything okay? <laughs> You're like, I had a baby. baby, yeah. And she had a key to our house, so if we have a cat, we've got puzzles, so we needed someone to go make sure the cat was <laughs> didn't escape and was okay. So we were in the hospital for two days. I had to call my boss on Easter Sunday to tell her because I had to go. I would have had to go into work the next day. Yeah, that's not gonna happen. I, I had to call her. I was like, so I just had a baby. Um, didn't didn't know this was gonna happen. Yeah, and I had just been there for about a very short time because uh, I just started working there in that fall during the fall. So it was just kind of like, <laughs> very, like, it was very awkward. It was kind of, then calling family to talk to them about this. And it was like, the only way I was like, I kind of have to do FaceTime with everybody. Because no one's going to believe me. <laughs> well, yeah, until they hear the Banshee. Yeah, yeah. Until they hear the child screaming. still they hear Talia screaming. So it was just kind of a crazy thing. And then when they got us out of the hospital... Erin had to bring the car around and there was a nurse that was there helping us get everything in. I'm two days post baby. My body is just like... I'm wearing a fucking diaper. Like, it's... It's, it's a disturbing experience. <laughs> even when you know you're going through it. So I really can't imagine what it's like when it was all a surprise. Yeah, when yeah, your body is just... It's everything's messed up. Yeah. Your hormones are it's just it's like a, yeah. complete crazy. Yeah. You don't know which way's up. You're yeah. like leaking, and yeah. And so she helped me get Talia into the car seat, and she looks at me and goes, "Fuck it," and just gives me a big hug, oh. because they they could do medical touching, but they're not supposed to they, be like. They couldn't really be like giving you a hug or being kind of i think in the sense of it was covid and everything but i i think the nurses the nurses i have to say were the most amazing people like these women were just incredibly kind incredibly thoughtful like her saying just going like fuck it and just giving me a hug was so amazing because my mom wasn't there I didn't have any like our family, our community. There was no preparation. There was no preparation. And there was no like way to have in even with in when COVID times, this was beginning of COVID, we didn't have You weren't hugging. You were, weren't getting close to people. Yeah. At six feet. Yeah, right? exactly. It was yeah, very isolated. Yeah. Oh, it was incredibly isolated. And then so Aaron and I get home and on the door of our house our neighbors have put welcome home mom and dad and baby talia Mm -hmm. and our neighbor who had the key got our neighbors in and they cleaned our house or downstairs and they did a little bit of the bathroom and they had food they had stuff for us people had sent us stuff all right like our house was already had full of like gifts (laughs) like baby stuff baby stuff just like yeah, just, ridiculous you know, amounts of yeah, clothing yeah, and, and diapers just, yeah. and pack and play yeah. and everything you would need. Yeah, exactly. And it was just like, and that was the thing that was really kind of cool is, yes, in the sense of we were in the COVID time, we we're in COVID times and we're isolating, there still was a sense of community in the ways of, of outside our world. Now, Talia is almost two years old. A terrorist who likes to destroy things. Yeah, I mean, so 20, 20 months, right? Yeah. And she's 95th percentile in height. Yeah. So she went from being this little squeedunk yeah. to now just being ridiculously tall. And just running around and being... And climbing. Climbing. We have a, we have a climber who doesn't quite... Even when we were at the zoo, at the petting zoo, and she wanted to climb on the structures that the goats go on. to get get away from people, yeah. Yeah, and that the fact that the volunteer had to tell her no. Yeah, yeah, It sounds about right. (laughs) And she really is a joy and such a happy kid. So it's amazing that 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 this is the outcome. Right, yeah. It could have been so much worse. So much worse. She's thriving. Yeah, she, she really is. She's thriving. Yeah. And it was just it was an incredible it was an inc- it's been a crazy experience. There's been tears. There's been a lot of times of just feeling like what the fuck is going on? But it also there's always been a sense of community. There's always been a sense of friends and family that we talk to regularly. I mean, I talked to you regularly when I was like, I was just like yeah. <laughs> So, thinking back through it all, like, in hindsight, are you, like, maybe that was a sign I was pregnant? Yeah. Like, so, you think yeah. about that? Yeah, I do. Well, the thing is, because you know this, I have horrible acid reflux, and I take... You take meds for it. take meds for it. And, like, I was having it, like, a lot more. And then I was also, like, taking Tums and all this stuff. But it was like, no, like, this is just my acid reflux. And it's, that was in the fall, winter of 2019. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then you also had an improved appetite in yeah. early 2020, <laughs> Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Because I remember Erin <laughs> making a comment, man, she's eating great. Yeah, yeah because Because yes, of the yeah, um, acid reflux, my appetite is always screw. Yeah, right, low and screwy. Right. So even with medication, it's still like, it hates me. I've just decided my body hates me. And <laughs> so the fact that you were all of a sudden eating yeah. a lot probably would have been an indicator. Right, yeah. And I guess you carried, were you low or was it like inward? What were they saying? Well, they said, so what they said, why I didn't show as much was the placenta was on the front of my abdomen and Holly was behind it. So that's why she didn't show, like it wasn't a showing thing. So that kind of kept it down, her, her weight and everything. So was she head first? Yeah, she was head first. Yeah, that's good yeah. was she sunny side up or down so that face up or face down so all I remember like it was I just saw hair so you, you, no idea <laughs> no idea I have no idea what she, yeah. I'm like I mean she didn't have a bruise but she hit the toilet like <laughs>
6: Well, babies bounce. Remember? Yeah. They,
5: they do. There's a reason that they're little bones and they're kind of yeah. bouncy and yeah. stuff is that they have to come through that traumatic experience coming <laughs> the world. Yeah. Little did she you know it would be that yeah. much yeah. more exciting. I mean, the human body is an incredible thing. And they also build you for a vaginal delivery. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Which clearly <laughs> did not happen at the hospital. <laughs> the fact when this was happening with the beginning of covid and that this was the beginning of the isolation the beginning of how we all were feeling so that through this experience we gained a community in a sense of our neighborhood which right. was in our neighborhood we we don't we knew each other by passing and stuff but <laughs> we became the people that my neighbors would be like how you doing like how, do you need anything like and then we also, I can't speak more highly of how awesome my neighbors are that- and your work. The, My work was incredibly accommodating. I, and the fact that I work in a work setting that was I was able to do that is incredible. Because there, there are some women that this would, if this happened to them, they couldn't do it. There would be nothing that they could do. I'm very aware of my privilege and my appreciative of my ability <laughs> to have that sense of community. Even in the one of the times of our world where we are all isolated and there's all these other things going on in the world that we're so pulling each other apart, whether it's politics or whatever, that I had a community that came together <laughs> and I'm very fortunate to have a little girl who is so spunky and I know I'm going to get a phone call when she's in college and she's gotten arrested for protesting something and I'll just be like. Alright, um so what we protesting. She kinda came into the world with <laughs> gusto, like <laughs> and she's still got gusto today, like <laughs> she does. She she sounds like a banshee sometimes. It's very exciting. <laughs> when you're like trying to get her to not eat dog food and yeah, it's, it's just special. She's so happy that she is. She's been a good baby. She's been a good baby. One thing I just keep, coming, keep thinking back to is like how amazing the community came together for me and I remember at the time and I was postpartum and I was just like out of my mind it was very hard for me to take that to accept, t- to accept the kindness and the help because I was so like I know I need to do this I'm the mom blah 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 and, like I think you at one point told me like no no take the help all the help you can get <laughs> yeah, yeah one of my friends who was like one of my people who called me like what what do you need like yeah. I I can drop something off on your front porch like I can do this like let me I'll ring the doorbell I'll wave to you like right right yeah <laughs> like I just and then I also like remember my boss when we had our stay at home order she would put a bag on my handle my door <laughs> knock and walk back and I'd open the door take it and it was like, it was like a drug deal but it was <laughs> it was the most like <laughs> it was
2: very though. <laughs> yeah
5: yeah people have been were just incredible and they from the doctors from even the emts from even the like the night nurses and the fact the woman just goes fuck it and gives me a hug but but also in the midst of a you know the beginning of a pandemic a really scary time when our medical system was yeah starting to crumble under the weight of what they were dealing with so yeah you know, knowing that you have this sense of community and these people around you and everybody rallied. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, they probably appreciated having that. Like, like a, almost like a normal, like, not normal, but- No, but it gave them something to do and focus on besides themselves. Yeah. Right? And at the beginning of the pandemic especially, it was really scary. And yeah. And you didn't know Yeah. what was going on. Exactly, yeah. There was just these crazy, like, points and then Talia coming into the world in a blaze of glory. But yeah, so that's Talia's birth story in a nutshell. <laughs> well, thanks for reliving
3: it. Isn't she wonderful? Isn't she precious? Less than one minute old. I never thought through love you'd be making one as lovely as she. But isn't she lovely? And she's made from love.
0: This is Risk. This is Frank Sinatra by me now. And we just heard the story Giving Grace by Maureen O'Malley Kirshner and her sister-in-law, Elizabeth. Now, Maureen can be found on Instagram at MsMarine5. And by the way, you can find the soundtrack from that story on John LaSala's Bandcamp page at johnlasala.bandcamp.com. Coming up, we're going to hear two more of our favorite stories from the past six months or so one from David who whose shit is still mad dope and we'll close out with an extraordinary story by Laura Baring but first I got to give a little shout out to our latest patreon member Sherry Passel oh my gosh we always give a shout out to someone who's giving $25 or more per month over there on patreon so thank you so much Sherry, we really do need this support from our fans to keep risk running, and we truly appreciate it. We have almost a hundred and sixty bonus stories over there on Patreon, and over 60 check-ins with storytellers, staff members, sometimes me pouring my heart out about how things are behind the scenes. There's a ton of amazing content to find at patreon.com risk, and if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Now let's hear from David Who, who you can find at Dave 718 on Instagram. This is a story Dave told back in August 2021 at our NYC show at Caveat, and it's a story we call The LifeSaver.
3: Lonely it could have not been done without you who the one who's so very lovely.
4: I'm 14 years old, and I'm walking to school one morning. And out of the blue, I hear someone scream, you fucking chink! Go back to China and eat a ball of rice! Startled and confused, because I don't even like rice. (laughs) And I look around, and I see this middle-aged white guy standing on his porch across the street, staring at me and giving me the middle finger. And I wonder, what the hell is this problem? I had to brush it off because I'm late for school. The next morning, on my way to school, I see that guy standing on his porch, staring at me like a hawk and giving me the middle finger. And I could feel the adrenaline building up and my hands are clenched like a fist. I try to ignore it. As soon as I walk by his house, all I hear is, you fucking chink, go back to China, and eat a bowl of rice. Oh my God, I feel like a moving target for this guy's racist gratification. And every morning, for over a week, I can feel the anxiety building up, like pins and needles exploding through my veins. My chest feels really tight, like my body is being submerged in water. And walking to school is beginning to suck. It's not because I'm out of shape, it's because this fucking asshole is ruining my day, and I just can't take it anymore. And I tell my mom and dad about it one afternoon. I remember the expression on their faces, Livid, beat red, obviously pissed off. Mom, who is this guy? I don't know, Mom. It's this crazy white guy down the block that's harassing me. My dad, in his broken English. Why make trouble? What's his problem? Who is he? I don't know, Dad. And both my parents are, okay, we'll walk to his house. We told him, stop bothering you. I remember staring outside the window of my house and seeing my mom and dad walk down the street. I felt like I was watching one of those old Western movies. And I'm really scared and nervous. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. 30 minutes later, they walk back into the house. And my dad's like, okay, don't bother you anymore. Thank God. The next morning on my way to school, I don't see that guy standing on his porch. Later that afternoon, on my way back home from school, I walk into my house. And I see my mom standing there and staring at me. She's like, David, I need to tell you something. The tone of her voice brought chills down my spine, followed by a long, awkward pause and a deep breath. Okay, David, someone threw a brick through our window and almost hit dad. Luckily, he's okay. After my mom told me that, I felt this bottomless pit in my stomach. Mom, did you call the police? Yeah, yeah, we called the police. Police don't do anything. No witnesses. I thought that was bullshit because someone broke our window in broad daylight. And I was like, Dad, what are we going to do about this? Are we going to kick his ass? And my dad said, no, no trouble. Just forget. Pissed off and confused because growing up in a blue-collar white neighborhood like Pound Parkway in the Bronx, the way everyone solves their problems is through physical violence. I remember when I was 10 years old, sitting on my porch, I see this guy marching down my street with a shovel shovelful dog shit. He goes up to my neighbor's house and catapults dog shit all over his driveway and porch. And he's like, hey, asshole, could your dog that side look at everyone else, you motherfucker? I'm going to take the shovel and shove it up your ass. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, this guy knows how to handle this shit. <laughs> I wish my dad did the same as well. Things got worse after my parents escalated the incident. Others in the neighborhood started to harass me as well. It was like cancer and spreading fast. Call me chink, tell me go back to China where I belong. I remember one afternoon walking down my street and there was a school bus full of white boys from a local Catholic school pull up beside me and they all huddled up against the window of the bus and started screaming at me like wild dogs. Get them! Fuck you up, you chink! I'm going to go to your house, break your windows, and kill your parents! As soon as that bus took off, my body felt completely numb. All I wanted to do was curl up in the field position and die. I fucking hated living in that neighborhood. And I begged mom and dad to move. But they were like, no, Gong Gong bought this house. Gong Gong wants us to stay. Gong Gong is my grandfather who gave my parents his entire life savings to buy a house that we're in right now because we lived in a small apartment in a really bad neighborhood called Valentine's Avenue in the Bronx. And the only advice my parents had for me was, Go the other way, the longer way to school, that is. One afternoon, on my way back home from school, I'm exhausted. And I happen to see Jerry, my neighbor, across the street. Jerry is this crazy ex-Vietnam vet. And he's like, hey, kid, come here. I got something for you. So I walk across the street, curious, and he hands me a hammer. And he's like, hey, kid, next time you see that motherfucker, I want you to beat the shit out of him until he dies. (laughs) I'm like, cool, thanks. <laughs> I was hoping for candy, but I'll sell for hammer instead. <laughs> the next morning, I'm getting ready for school, and I find out the other way is under construction, and my only alternative option is to walk back to that crazy asshole's house. And I'm scared of shit, because I think this guy's going to kill me. So I take the hammer Jerry gave me, and I put it in my book bag. <laughs> On my way to school... I can feel the anxiety building up. My heart is pounding out of my chest. You know that feeling that you get when you're on a roller coaster is it's about to hit the climax? As soon as I walk by that guy's house, he's not standing on his porch. I see him walking down the street. So I pull out the hammer out of my book bag and I follow him. As I get closer, he suddenly drops to the ground face first. I was like, wow, that was easy. And I hear a loud thud. It sounded like a sack of potatoes being dropped from a two-story building. I buckle up and stand there, and he's convulsing like a fish out of water. And I slowly walk up to him. He has his hand on his chest, and his other hand is reaching up towards me. And I just stare at that endless void in his eyes against his pale white complexion. And it brings back a memory of my dad, when I was eight years old, living in that small apartment on Valentine's Avenue in the Bronx. I remember... I was standing in the kitchen with my mom. It was close to midnight. And I hear someone approach the front door of our apartment and put the key in the lock. But what was odd was it didn't turn. So my mom walks up to the door and I looks through the people. And it's my dad. And she's like, Marcia, how come you can't open the door? And I hear footsteps in the background and they get louder and louder. And suddenly I hear my mom scream, oh my God. And on the other side of the door, I hear someone yell, Give me your money, I'll cut your throat, you fucking chink. Followed by screaming and sounds of fists exploding throughout the hall of the building as my mom stared through that people in fear. The noises were brief. However, the trauma lasted a lifetime after that key turned in the lock. And I see my dad rush into the apartment and slam the door shut. He's trembling, he's out of breath, and he's holding his fist in his hand and I could see the blood dripping throughout the knuckles of his fingers onto the kitchen floor. It's bright red and glossy, and I stand there and I stare at it. It's a lot to process for an eight-year-old, especially after his bedtime. <laughs> and I hear my mom scream, damn it, go to sleep, no more trouble. As my mom wrapped my dad's hand up with a kitchen towel, his face is pale, and I just stare through that endless void in his eyes. And I realize this piece of shit lay on the ground, convulsing like a fish out of water, is going to die. And no one fucking gives a shit about him, except for me. So I walk over to the neighbor's house. I knock on the door. Hey, call an ambulance, this body's about to die. They arrive, and they pick him up. After that incident, I don't see that guy anymore. And a couple weeks later, I walk into school one morning. And I happened to pass by that guy's house. And I see him sitting on his porch. He looks really weak. He's wearing a robe. So what I do is I walk across the street. I'm standing in front of his house. And I smile and I wave at him. And I see him struggle to get out of his chair. And I'm hoping he's going to thank me for saving his life. And maybe we could become friends. And the first thing he says is, You fucking chink! Go back to China and eat a bowl of rice! I guess we're not going to be friends. (laughs) And I continue to smile and walk away because just like any other bully out there, they're scared and insecure and they hide behind their hateful words. Eventually, he died. (laughs) And the Cambodian family moved in. And shortly afterwards, a black and Hispanic family moved to the block, and my neighborhood became less and less white. Looking back as an adult, I never understood why my parents chose not to fight or flight, because it was obvious our lives were in danger. As members of the Asian community suffered as well, they reacted the same way my parents did growing up in the Bronx. And what I learned is that it's because of Eastern Asian culture. It's all about being part of the community not the conflict, and that said, being the bigger person is a lot better way to handle one's shit. Thank you.
6: It's 2017, and I fly home to Texas to be with my sweet, lovely, five-year-old nephew named Joey, who lives with my mom and my stepdad. I also go home to help my mom because we are preparing for family court. Now, to give you a little bit of background, my younger sister, Joey's mom, she suffers from bipolar disorder, among other things. And to cope with her mental illness, she does drugs. Her life is absolutely the most painful Existence I could imagine for anyone. She started with pain meds, the kind that you can get from the emergency room, and now she does harder things like heroin and crystal meth. The year prior, we had gone to family court for the first time. It was very spur of the moment because my sister had shown up demanding that she take Joey. But we wanted the judge to let us keep Joey. I mean, he was only four years old at the time, and he had lived every single day of his life in that same house with his grandmother. My sister represented herself at that hearing, and she only had to prove that she was stable in that moment. Her past history of drug abuse wasn't admissible, and she did. And we lost. And I watched my little sister awkwardly put Joey into a car seat that she had clearly never used before, and drive off declaring that we would never see him again. Now, that declaration lasted a few months, Months where we spent every day wondering if Joey was safe, wondering if Joey was scared, wondering if Joey was alone while his sister was out getting high with some guy. And then randomly, my sister showed back up. She wanted my mom to babysit Joey for the weekend. Now Joey was the same sweet, funny, deeply inquisitive little boy that he had always been, but there were a few changes in him. He was scared of showers, and he would get really, like, agitated and he'd freeze up if he made a loud noise or if he accidentally knocked something over. And that weekend of babysitting turned into a week, which turned into another week and another week, and so for an entire year, we just waited for the other shoe to drop. We waited for my sister to call, angry and high on meds and demand that she take him back. We locked the back gate every night, hoping that we wouldn't hear a strange car drive up the drive. But living like that isn't sustainable, so... We eventually decided to put everything on the line and uh, go to court. I show up to Texas and the guest room at my family's house looks like a tornado has hit. I mean there's papers everywhere. There's logbooks and files and, 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 and lists of my sister's drug abuse and job situations and alleged boyfriends and trips to the ER. I mean all of this spanning years. I mean the entirety of Joey's young life and my mom is so frantic and she's just trying to get everything organized and in the middle of this, Joey wanders in, and he knows that we're anxious, but he's, you know, he's too little to know why, and we're obviously not going to tell him. And He just wants to watch Harry Potter with me. But I can't watch Harry Potter with him, because my job that night is to take all the recordings of phone conversations between my mom and my sister and put them onto a thumb drive so that our lawyer can play the thumb drive in court if need be. Now, I hadn't seen my sister in a few years, that I heard her voice loud and angry in this manic episode yelling at my mom and this, this guy with this thick country accent threatening to jack my mom's jaw, and it was unbelievable. So the next day we get up, and my mom and I meet with her lawyer, Jim, in his office, and we have all of our binders of info, and he rifles through everything, and he quizzes my mom, asking her questions that, that he will on the stand, trying to prep her, and he, he encourages her to really keep it simple, to keep the answers short... Because we have, after all, only 20 minutes to prove our case. And then my sister will have 20 minutes to prove her case. 40 whole minutes. And my nephew's fate will be decided. But my mom couldn't keep it simple. Every simple answer unraveled into this web of backstory and explanation and detail, and I could not imagine the stress that my mom was under, and yet I knew she had to keep it together because everything was riding on her testimony. The next morning, we got up for court, and we put on our nice clothes. I was driving us there, and I wanted us to get there early, and I had water bottles and bananas, and I, and I packed them away in the car in case we got hungry, and, and we put on our nice clothes, and, and we, we kissed Joey, and he, you know, he was wearing little Spider-Man pajamas, and my stepdad was staying with him while we went to court. And we drove to the courthouse. We went through security, up the elevators to the third floor, and we met with Jim. I showed Jim how to use the thumb drive, and I got pretty scared because it kind of seemed like new technology for him. Like he wasn't sure how to, how to insert the thumb drive into the computer, and I was like, you can't screw this up. My sister walked in alone. She was wearing boots and jeans with um, bedazzled pockets and this, like, kind of tight-fitting top, and I could tell that she'd really tried to look her best, and that really made me sad. We were the first case of the day, and uh, the judge asked if we were ready to proceed, and we said yes. The judge asked my sister if she was ready to proceed, and she stood up and told the judge that she was uh, not given adequate time to find representation, and she would prefer a postponement. Well, I mean, this was a lie. We'd given her plenty of time. We'd given her more time than necessary but the judge nodded and gave her a two-week postponement, just like that. We walked out of the courtroom minutes after walking in. I went back to California. My mom worked on the case and tried to get it organized more clearly. Two weeks later, I flew to Texas for the second time. We met with Jim again in his office. My mom was still having a lot of trouble keeping everything organized and and trying to keep things simple and, and clear, but at least she wasn't as frantic this time. Then we got up in the morning of court, and we we put our nice clothes on, and I had the the water bottles and the bananas ready, and, and we kissed my nephew goodbye as he was eating his cereal at the table, and we drove to the courthouse. We went through security, up the elevators to the third floor, and we met with Jim. And my sister walked in, alone. She had her hair pulled up into this messy knot, and her clothes were really baggy, and the judge asked us if we were ready to proceed, and we said yes. The judge asked my sister if she was ready to proceed, and she said yes. She said she was ready to proceed, and she had this big binder full of paperwork with her. But then she said that she'd spent the entire night in the emergency room, and she was in a lot of pain, and she would prefer another postponement. The judge nodded and gave her another two weeks, just like that. We walked out of the courtroom minutes after walking in, and I was mad because I thought my sister was working the system to her advantage and taking us all for a ride, but I mean, what were we going to do? So I went back to California. My mom and I talked on the phone and, and went over her cross-examination, and then two weeks later, I flew to L.A. for a third time. We didn't meet with Jim in his office, and we went to bed early. And we got up the next morning, and we put on our nice clothes, and we kissed my nephew goodbye, and we drove the very familiar route to the courthouse, We went through security, up the elevators to the third floor, and we met with Jim. The judge asked us if we were ready to proceed. We said yes. The judge asked my sister if she was ready to proceed, and she said yes. And then I watched my mom take the stand. Jim asked her questions about my sister's drug use and past living situations and job situations, and I watched my mother really struggle to be clear but also... Loving, because that was her kid that she was talking about after all. Jim fired off questions, and my mom answered them, and she kept it simple. She kept it simple, and I just sat there in my seat, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, dear God, please take care of my nephew, please take care of my nephew, please take care of my nephew. And then my sister took the stand. Jim asked her questions about her her drug use and her, her living situations and caught her in some lies, and then he played the thumb drive, and my sister's angry voice high on drugs filled the courtroom and she sounded so bad I was glad I was glad it was coming out in court it was the version of her that we knew so well and the version of her that we saw so often and yet I wanted to run across the courtroom and wrap her up into a hug and tell her that we loved her that we were not doing this to hurt her we were doing this because we had to and then our 20 minutes were up and my sister began her defense. She gave an impassioned plea to the judge. I mean, she talked about how much she loved her son and how hard things had been for her, but how she was really, really trying to, to get things in order. I looked at the judge, but I, I couldn't tell if he believed her. I mean, she sounded really convincing. And then I watched my sister cross-examine my mom on the stand. She sounded like a lawyer. It was like half professional sounding and also like half painfully intimate. She asked my mom these like open-ended questions and she rarely cut her off and all of the detail and all of the the backstory that my mom had worked so hard to keep from unraveling finally had a place to come out. And I watched my mom paint this very clear picture of of what life was like with my sister and how, how hard we had tried to make things different but how scared we were for my nephew if she were to take him again. And then my sister's 20 minutes were up. I looked at the judge. And he had his head bent down, and he was, like, scribbling notes. And I looked at Jim, our lawyer, but he, like, looked kind of calm and slightly disinterested. And then the judge, he, he lifted his head up, and he started reading from his notepad. And it was a lot of legal jargon. It was really hard for me to follow, but I heard things like custody and supervised visitation and guardian. But, like, which way was it going? Like, nobody's reacting. Why isn't it clear? Did we win? And then he dismissed us. My sister walked out. She didn't look at us, and I looked at my mom. We had won. We walked out of the courtroom in like a daze, you know? Like for the first time in five years, we didn't have to be scared that she would show up in a a fit of rage and demand him back. We didn't have to worry that we would take him to preschool in the morning and, and pick him up in the afternoon, but he'd be gone. We didn't have to be scared. My mom and I wandered into this Mexican food restaurant that was across the street, and we were just we just ordered, like, Diet Cokes, and we read through the, the filing. And what it said was that instead of being the custodial guardian, which is what we had asked for, um, my mom was actually considered the third parent, which might not seem like a big deal, but it's actually a huge distinction. What it means is that my mom has equal rights to my nephew and gets to decide where he lives. It also said that the biological parents only get supervised visitation, which is a tragic thing to be excited about, but we were so relieved. And I thought back to you know, all of the court dates prior, and I, I wondered if things would have turned out differently if my sister hadn't created so many postponements if my mom hadn't had that time to get grounded and if she'd still been so frantic and so anxious, and I wondered if all of that frustration and all of that time had really been a really big miracle in disguise. I have a little bit of an epilogue to the story. All of that happened in 2017, and in 2019, enough time had passed that it was appropriate and reasonable for us to go to court and start the process to see if we could adopt Joey. So you know, we went through the paperwork and started it, but then the courts in Texas shut down for the pandemic. But last summer, the courts in Texas opened back up. So I flew to Texas and the day of court, we got up and we put on our nice clothes and Joey wore these khaki pants and this little blue and white button up shirt. And we drove the very familiar route to the courthouse. We went through security up the elevators to the third floor and we went in, and the you know lawyer and judge did all their legal talk, and then right at the very end, the judge looked down at my nephew, and he said, young man, do you know what's happening today? Do you, do you want to be adopted? And with this big smile on his face, Joey said, yes, sir. <laughs> and then he said, I have never actually met a real judge before. <laughs> and we took pictures with the judge, and I tried not to cry pretty unsuccessfully, and then As we were walking out of the courtroom, Joey opened his arms really wide and he said, family hug! And we wrapped our arms around him right there in the courtroom and we hugged him in the same place that we had lost him and fought for him for so many years. And then we went home and by God, we watched Harry Potter. Thank you.
4: Am I a bird?
5: Am I a shoe? Or am I something Strange and new Alive and alone And blue
4: like you And am I falling Through the sky Like a little
5: lullaby Far away And far too high
0: That is almost all for The Best of Risk, number 25. You're listening to Bob Schneider behind me now, and we just heard a story that was first shared at the Risk live show in Los Angeles by Laura Baring called Family Hug. And that was actually somewhat of a sequel to the first story that Laura shared with us, During the lockdown of 2020, when we were doing our live shows as live streams with all the storytellers in their separate homes. So it was very cathartic to hear that at least that part of that saga had such a happy ending. And before Laura, we heard Keith Boudreau doing a little acoustic guitar version of People in Your Neighborhood from Sesame Street
3: Go to your happy price, priceline.
0: We're back. Folks, everything you need to know about us is at risk-show.com. And on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, we're at Risk Show. And don't forget, fans discuss the stories over at the Risk Podcast Fans discussion group on Facebook or on our subreddit, Risk Podcast. Folks. Today's the day, take a risk.